Morning, everybody. Turn in your Bibles or smartphones or whatever way that you read the word to Mark chapter 10, 35 through 45. And this is one of my favorite stories in scripture um, because it just goes to show you that disciples are far from perfect and these guys are reckless. So I can't wait to read it. Uh, We also have it up here behind us. If for any reason you're visiting today and you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one as a gift. We have a few down here in the front. Just feel free to take those and uh, we're glad you're here. Let's, let's dive in. Mark chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> you ever pray like that? What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. These guys are, they're reckless. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. Now, how do you feel when you read these guys' request to Jesus? Maybe you, maybe you feel like the 10, maybe you can identify with that. You feel indignant toward them. Like, how could you ask that of Jesus? Or maybe... Maybe you see a little bit of that in yourself. Because I think to some degree, either way, if we're honest, we're all a little bit like them. We've all prayed that prayer before. Hey, God, um, I need you to give me whatever I ask. Has anybody here never prayed that prayer before? No, of course. We all, we all have. We've all prayed like that. And that's, I think it's, I don't want to be too hard on this. I think it's just where we live. It's the water we swim in. It's the human condition. We pray self-centered prayers because to some level in our hearts, there's, there's part of us that are self-centered, right? If we're, if we're really honest with ourselves, we want to be in control. We want to arrive. We want to be admired. We want to be served because our culture says when you arrive, you're served, right? You work at a job, you know, as the, as the famous saying goes, poop flows downhill. It's not Maybe not exactly how the saying goes, right? But similar to that. That's, that's one of those things. When you, when you get into a job, we, you have to put your time in. You got to work hard. We want to be served because it's the people at the bottom who are doing all the serving. And many of us, we just, we don't want to be at the bottom. Anybody relate? Maybe I'm preaching to just myself today, but I need it today because this one is, hits me right in the heart. Maybe, maybe you love to serve others. 
And this text has a lot for you too, and we'll get to that. But the majority of us, I think this whole idea of serving just sucks. I mean, you see the title of the text? In our culture, servant is not a good word. Not like your, your guidance counselor, you know. So what do you want to be when you grow up, Johnny? I'm thinking about servant. That's, you know, no, <laughs> nobody has ever said that, right? Like my son's been listening to retro rap and he, uh, he's been saying, yeah, retro rap, I don't know, whatever, old school. And, uh, and he's, he'll just be walking around, we'll get out of the car at the grocery store and I hear him say, I'm the cream of the crop, I rise to the top. <laughs> But that's like a thing in our culture, right? The cream of the crop rises to the top. We all want others to serve us. We want to be the big boss or big boss baby, if you guys have seen the movie. We want to lord it over them. Nobody wants to serve, to be bossed around, to be lorded over, right? Even on social media, it's like, dude, I hope they like my picture. Respect my opinion, right? This is, we want to be served. It's a symptom of a deeper issue. We all have our, ourselves at the center and I see it in me when I watch movies, I identify with certain people. Uh, a couple months ago, our family watched Groundhog Day, the classic Bill Murray movie. And if there was a subtitle for this sermon, it would be the gospel according to Groundhog Day. I'm going to reference that quite a bit. Has anybody seen Groundhog Day? It's one of my favorite. I forgot how much I liked that movie until we watched it. And um, Bill Murray's character, Phil, he's stuck in this cycle of never-ending Groundhog Days. If you haven't seen it, I've got to explain the premise briefly. And he starts off as this really self-centered, egotistic guy, but he keeps waking up every day in the same bed. And Sonny and Cher are singing, put your little hand in mine. You know, it's like, oh man, it's the same day again. At the beginning of this film, he's super self-centered. And there's a scene that explains it really well. Um, he's trying to get with his producer, Rita, uh, Andy McDowell's character. And um, so he asked her, he says, so what do, you, what do you look for in a man? I'm just going to read this because I think it's, it's modern art and we need to appreciate it. <laughs> and she says, well, the perfect man, first, he's too humble to know he's perfect. And he goes, that's me, right? <laughs> he's intelligent, supportive, and funny. He says, hmm, me, me, me. He's romantic and courageous, me also. He has a good body, but he doesn't need to look in the mirror every two minutes. He goes, I have a great body. And sometimes I go months without looking in the mirror. <laughs> He's kind, sensitive, and gentle. He's not afraid to cry in front of another man. This is a man we're talking about, right? <laughs> but Bill Murray's character, Phil, he's so self-centered. It's, like, it's part of his charm, and it works somewhat because he's successful. He's at the top of his game, and he lives a life with his self at the center. But where does that life lead? And later on in the movie, Andy McDowell is just fed up with his self-centeredness. And she says a quote that when she said it, it just hit me. It's uh, from a line of Sir Walter Scott. And she says this to him. The wretch concentrated all in self, living shall forfeit fair renown, and doubly dying shall go down to the vile dust from whence he sprung, unwept, unhonored, and unsung. And that's exactly where Phil is heading on this trajectory. And for us today who live lives that, to one degree or another, whether it's great or small, in certain areas and not others, we are all somewhat centered on ourselves, And that's where it leads. But in Mark 10, we see this different picture. Jesus is actually at the top, and yet he's serving others. 
It's these backward economics of the kingdom that he calls us into. He says this in the passage we just read. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever must be, wants to be first must be slave at all. The first shall be... Thank you. You want to rise to the top? He says, take the low road. You want to be the greatest? Be the servant of all. These are the backward economics of the kingdom. So today, if we want to live like citizens of that kingdom, if we want to live like servants of the king, if we want to believe what Jesus really says about us, this passage has a lot to say to us. There's something to be learned from it. And if we let what we learn from this passage really speak to our hearts, it will free you. It will free you from the negative motivations that drive so much of your life. It'll free us to live better lives, to be better parents and spouses and, and friends. To not be cynical anymore, but to actually believe we can help bring change into this world, to our workplaces, into our city. It'll free us to live the life we're really longing for. And here's the ironic truth of it. Only as a servant are you going to be truly free. Whether you realize it or not. Because Jesus says in this passage... You're already serving something. Whether you realize it or not, the Bible says you're serving something. Look at what he says in verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? Ransom. What's a ransom? That word is so important. That word in Greek is lutron, which means to loosen, which means to buy a person out of slavery or captivity. Think about what a ransom is, you know? Like somebody, somebody's kidnapped and you get a note from the kidnappers and they say, we need $100,000 or your kid is toast. <laughs> Why not? It means the child's, the child's in captivity. It means the child needs to be freed and it's the only way your child's gonna be free is through a terribly costly exchange. Ransom is a cost. It's a price. It's an amount that is substitutionary. When you give it, it's in exchange for freedom from some kind of captivity. So when Jesus says he's come to ransom us, he's telling us two things about ourselves, and they're both incredibly important, and that's what we're going to focus on today. He's telling us, first, we're in bondage. And secondly, that he's come to pay a terribly costly price for our freedom. So let's look at those things today, bondage and freedom. First of all, bondage. When he says he's come to ransom us, he says we're in bondage. And that's a tough truth for people to swallow. There's probably a lot of people that hear that and they say, hey man, um, look, I know I'm not perfect. I may not always be happy 100% of the time and I not, may not be as religious as you are, but it doesn't mean I'm in bondage. I'm a free person. Really? Are you sure? Are you, are you fully persuaded? Because the Bible would say that no one is more the prisoner than the one who doesn't even know he or she's a prisoner. Let's put it another way. Anyone who doesn't know he or she's a prisoner is the most complete prisoner of all. And the Bible says, regardless of whether you feel or think you're in bondage, you are. And not seeing that you're in bondage actually shows how in bondage you really are. I mean, it's one thing for a guy to like tie you up and put you in a corner and you're struggling to get out and you know you're in bondage. It's another thing for somebody to tie you up and cold cock you and knock you out and there you are laying on the floor. You have no idea. You're just completely 
oblivious to the fact that you're in bonds. The person who doesn't know they're in bondage is the most complete prisoner of all. And do you know what the Bible says is true of all of us? What Jesus is saying here, he says, I've come to ransom you. He means we're captive to bad masters. There are tyrants in our life that are ruling over us. What are those masters? I'm, I'm going to hit them very quickly. Just tag in and see if you see yourself in any of this. The Bible says that sin creates these slaveries, these captivities. The first one is we're slaves to self. Slaves to self. 2 Timothy 3.1 says we are lovers of self. Now, that's not just talking about like the, the healthy, like, you know, self-image. It's not Justin Bieber saying, you know, hey, if you like the way you look that much, baby, you should go and love yourself. That's not what this is talking about. <laughs> this is talking about a terrible bondage that comes in one degree or another with all of us because we put the self in the center of our lives, like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, like these disciples in the passage. And you know what kind of bondage comes from putting yourself at the center? The self is a terrible taskmaster because you're always wanting to be in control. And you're always freaking out when things don't go according to your plan. Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Or we're always comparing ourselves to one another. And we feel completely, utterly destroyed when people shun us. But then when people, like, love us and say something nice, we just, like, swell with pride. So we're, like, on this roller coaster of self-love and self-loathing. Anybody ever? Maybe I'm the only one on that one. Um, Those are the marks of bondage to self. And what ends up happening is that most of your life, whether you know it or not, is focused on self-protection, self-provision, self-promotion. So we're protecting, promoting, and providing for this hypersensitive self in the center. That's a bondage. We spend our time doing that. The other one the Bible says is idols. This is just another kind of bondage, right? You're not only in bondage to yourself, you're in bondage to idols. Now, I'll briefly mention this because we, we've preached on this recently and we will again soon, I'm sure, because it comes up a lot in the text. But there are a number of places where the Bible says you should shun epithumia, which means over-desires, over-desires. If you don't have Jesus as your Lord, something else will be. Whatever you put your hope in, is it your career? Is it a romantic, like, relationship? Is it your looks? Is it control? What is it? We've, We've talked about this in the past, but anything you have besides God to be happy is your real master. That's what you're serving. Anything you know that if I didn't have that, my life would fall apart. You might not think you're in bondage to it, but that's just because it's not, you know, jerking you around right now. The time inevitably will come when it fails you or things start to fall apart and you realize how in bondage to it you are. These things are bad masters, you see? Thirdly, we're in bondage to self, bondage to idols. You're also a slave to the law. What's that mean? Um, it means that all of us have, at the very least, all of us have bad consciences. Um, it says in Romans 6 and, and other places that the cross frees us from being under the law, so now we're under grace. What's that mean? It means that everybody has a sense at some level of the universal moral law of God. We all know it in our hearts, no matter what religion we are. The Bible says no matter if you're religious or not, we all know the fundamentals. For instance, look at the golden rule which is what? Do unto others as you would have them 
do unto you. Nobody has to teach you that. We all know that society wouldn't work without that. That's like printed on our conscience. You know it, but there's no more devastating exercise than to actually try this. Look back on your day. Look back on your week at all of your interactions and all of your relationships and ask yourself, did I meet the needs of other people with all the joy, with all the speed, with all the ingenuity and creativity and energy with which I'd meet my own needs? Just ask yourself that. Have I treated everybody else just the way I would want to be treated in the same circumstances? No. You break it every hour, you know? Everybody knows you can't have society without this. Everybody knows this is just simple justice. Everybody knows the universal moral law of God, and yet you break it all the time. So to be under the law means that we know, we know we're guilty, we all know we break the law. Everyone feels some sense of remorse and shame and guilt. Many people don't even know why. We're all in bondage to the law. So people do very different things with this terrible bondage. Some people deal with this sense of being under the law by trying to convince themselves, hey, everything's relative. Nothing really matters anyway. Who knows what's right and wrong? Whose values do you mean? You're talking about values. Who, who set those values up? Right? In fact, some people are so nihilistic. Maybe you sense people like this or talk to people like this. They basically say, like, I'm going to be damned anyway. Might as well just go out and have fun. Yeah? And that's what we see next in Groundhog Day. Might as well go there. Right? Bill Murray, for those of you guys that don't know the story, he's, he's like waking up in this repeated thing, and he finally just says, man, forget it. It doesn't matter. Nothing seems to have consequences. It's all the same day anyway. So he, he actually says this quote. I threw it up here. If there's no tomorrow, there's no consequences. So he says, if we could do whatever we wanted, like all your life, it's clean up your room, pick up your feet, be nice to your little sister, take it like a man. I'm not going to live by their rules anymore. So he sees rules as the like oppression of his freedom, right? So he throws them out. There's no tomorrow. There's no consequences. And what do we see happen? He like hops in a car and he's knocking stuff over and the cops are chasing him onto a train track and gets thrown in prison. And the next day he wakes up in his bed and he's like, hmm, all right. So then he goes and he robs a truck and he uses the money to buy himself all kinds of excessive things. And the next day he wakes up right back in his bed and he seduces women and tells them, I love you, baby. I'm going to marry you. Because he doesn't, he's not going to marry them, right, at all. It's the next day. He wakes up right in his bed, and he's, he's just living the dream that he thinks is the dream until it leaves him empty. It leaves him longing. And so we see, basically, he lives however he wants, but re- relativism fails him. So some people respond to the law by trying to convince themselves, everything's relative. It doesn't matter. That doesn't work. And the other way people respond, they, they try to throw the law out. The other way people respond is trying to measure themselves up by some law, right? It's called moralism. They respond to the law by being as moralistic as they can be. Why? Because if you can feel good enough about yourself and prove yourself enough, if you can somehow measure your goodness, you can find a, a religion or a worldview that has 700 laws that you can keep, You can kind of forget about all the main heart of the law and just concentrate on doing these things. If I can improve myself, you know, that that gets you away from having to think about the heart of morality, which is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as 
yourself. If you don't have to think about those main things, you can just start feeling better about yourself. And that's what we see happen next in Groundhog Day, right? He finally, he's at an end of himself, and so he says, you know what, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of just living for myself. I'm going to start living for others. He starts improving himself. He teaches himself piano. He helps, like, little boys who are falling out of trees, and he runs and catches them, you know? He knows exactly when they're going to fall out because he's lived this day infinitely. So he knows everything that's happening everywhere. And uh, Phil stops being relativistic, and he starts being good and caring for others. But does it make him happy? And it doesn't free him from the cycle. He keeps waking up in the same bed. He's so frustrated. And worst of all, he doesn't have the love that he longs for from Rita. So he's just stuck still. It's an improvement, but there's still issues. And here's why. Let me ask you a question. Are we the most unbiased judge of being the best that we can be? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Only God can judge me. Like, we love to say that whenever it's convenient for us, right? Most of our time, we prefer to be our own judges because we can measure ourselves by looking at everyone else. And we say, I'm doing better than him. I'm doing pretty good, right? It's kind of like uh, Max Lucado had this old example of jumping to the moon. He says, you know, imagine God's uh, measure of being good is up to the moon. And it says, the Bible says, we've all fallen short of God's glory, right? And so, so you try to jump to the moon and you, you know, what's that, like a foot? <laughs> I used to be able to dunk, okay? I, but maybe, let's just say, let's say I got like two feet off the ground, right? But you're like, I can do better than that. And so you train and you, you plan and you grab a pole vault and you get like 20 feet off the ground somehow. You can get higher than I am. But relative to the moon, we're all still falling pretty short, right? But that's what we do. We try to measure ourselves among ourselves so we feel better about who we are. And that's what we see Phil doing. Despite all his good works, he's still a slave to the law. He's still waking up every day on Groundhog Day. And here's the problem. These are ways with dealing with the fact that we're under the law. We either throw the law out and try to ignore it, or we try to perfectly obey it. And become better people. And Jesus says, this is bondage. This is what I've come to ransom you from. And unless you realize you're in bondage, unless you understand the purpose of the cross was to ransom you out. In fact, I'd say a lot of Christians don't even get this. And they actually pull the cross, as it were, into their bondage. They basically think, hey... Here's what it means to be a Christian. I try my best to be a good person. I try real hard. And as time goes on, yeah, of course, I start to fall behind because I'm not perfect. But finally, I feel so guilty that I need forgiveness. So I go to God and I remember that somehow, in some ethereal, vague way, Jesus died for me. So I ask forgiveness. I feel a little better. You know, I come up on Sunday, take the Lord's Supper, ask for forgiveness. Remember, Jesus died for me. Then I go out and I try really hard again. And I start needing forgiveness again, and the cycle repeats. It's Groundhog Day. And even that is a bondage. Because unknowingly, maybe even with some good intention, you've turned the good news of grace into the bad news of bondage. You've turned something that's beautifully relational into something that's broken and transactional. You've ripped the heart out of the gospel because you've made it about what you do instead of what's been done for you. 
And you can't find freedom from slavery through relativism or moralism. And you can't free yourself. That's why Jesus talks about this word ransom. See, ransom means you're in captivity. And if the cross is the ransom, it brings you into a whole new position and identity and a relationship you couldn't earn on your own. In the cross, you're free. And you're no longer relating to the bad masters anymore. And you're, you're serving God, but God's not one of the bad masters. You, you guys tracking? Okay. So what Jesus means is I've come to do something that's so radical, it puts you onto a whole new different footing. What is it that he did? He says, he talks about the cup. He says, I've come to pay a substitutionary price. Let's look at that. Point number two, freedom. If you, if you understand the cup, if you think about what Jesus went through in the garden, on the cross, you can't read this passage without it giving you goosebumps, without it making your flesh crawl. I'm going to try my hard, hardest to make your flesh crawl here, okay? He says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? What's the cup? Well, in the Old Testament... There's a lot about the cup, especially in the prophets. Here's two examples. In Isaiah 51, it says, you will drink the cup of God's fury and you will stagger. In Ezekiel 23, it says, you will drink the cup of ruin and desolation and you will tear at your breasts. And somebody says, oh my gosh, here we go. You have this primitive view of God as a God of wrath and judgment. Here's a 30-second soundbite. I, I love the way Tim Keller says it. He says it this way. He says, to be angry about evil... And to love are not only not incompatible, they're inseparable. What's he mean? Uh, do we have any artists in here? Anybody? Musical, painting, cool. Uh, four? Nice. We're getting there. What's an artist do when she sees somebody destroying her work? What response does she have but anger? What's a father do when he sees somebody destroying his son or daughter? What do they feel? Anger. I mean, you, you watch the news. You see things. You see innocent kids in some faraway place being abused and mistreated. How does that make you feel? You see innocent people groups being wiped out and destroyed. How does that make you feel? Your heart goes out to them and you feel anger. Now imagine that that was your kids. Imagine that that was your family being mistreated and abused and wiped out. How would that make you feel? Would you have less or more anger? Because the more you love something, the more angry you get about it being destroyed. Are we tracking? What is sin? It's destroying God's creation. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, if that's true, how much more persistent will be the love that made the worlds? Persistent as the artist's love for his work, venerable as the father's love for his son, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. See that? When, when we sin, we're not treating our neighbors as ourselves, right? We're, we're not only mistreating each other and trampling on each other, humanity's destroying itself. Every act of not loving somebody as myself is tearing the fabric of God's creation. That's the reason why dishonesty and stealing and abuse and all these things are destroying God's creation. But, but you know what? The greatest act of destruction is what you and I have done to ourselves by deciding that we're going to take our bodies and souls which belong to God and we're going to run them the way we want to run them. 
that we're not going to do it under God. We're not going to let him be our boss. We're going to be our own bosses. That leads to destruction. It's like my five-year-old saying, hey, dad, I'm going to take the car for a spin. No. (laughs) Oh, five-year-old, you are not ready for that. It's going to end in destruction. It's going to end bad. Is God mad at that destruction? Like the artist is mad? Like the father is mad? Of course there's wrath there. There has to be wrath. The cup of God's wrath is an eternal monument to the goodness of God. If he didn't love his creation, he wouldn't care. But because he loves and cares so much, he feels that anger. His wrath is directly proportional with his love. Because we've sinned, because we've broken this world, because we've trampled on one, each, one another, because we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, because we've served creation instead of the creator, because we're broken deep within and centered on self because of that. This wrath has come to us. We deserve it. We can push it out of our minds. We can try to act like it doesn't matter. We can try to explain it away. We can do all kinds of things. But within, deep within, we know the truth. A price has to be paid. That's the bad news. And who pays it? It's Jesus. That's the good news. It's the best news ever. You will drink the cup of God's wrath and you will stagger. You will drink the cup of God's wrath and you will tear at your breast. What was it like for Jesus to drink the cup? We're not totally sure, but we know this. And we'll explore this more on Good Friday. But when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just the anticipation of it, just, just the anticipation of it, so astonished him and traumatized him, he began to sweat blood. What does it take? What kind of stress is put on somebody to where the capillaries under their skin break and they begin to sweat blood? It actually happens. But it's tremendous trauma, tremendous stress. What would be so incredible and so terrible that the very Son of God, in anticipation of it, not in actually even experiencing it yet, just anticipating it, would sweat blood and writhe on the ground? What do you think it would have taken? What must that have been like? Jonathan Edwards says it this way. He says, this agony was caused by a vivid, bright, full view of the immediate wrath of God. That's what Jesus saw in the garden. God the Father did, as it were, set the cup down before his only son. He said, son, here's the cup, smell it. If you don't drink it, they will perish, will you? Jesus could have responded, why should I, infinitely greater than all the angels of heaven, why should I leave all my glory and love and take this burning agony into my soul for those who will never repay me? Don't even love me enough to stay awake with me in the hour of my greatest need. Do I deserve this? I don't. Oh, the cup, let it pass from me, he said. But if there's no other way, I will take the cup for them. And he staggered and he tore his breasts and he took it. It was the ransom. It was the substitutionary in character. It was the most precious price anybody could pay for you and I. 
And you might say, man, I don't believe in a God who punishes sin. I don't believe in a God who poured his wrath on, on sin like that or poured his wrath on his son like that to save us. I don't believe in a God like that. I hope you're sure of yourself. Because do you see what you're doing? You're tearing the guts out of what Jesus did. Why, why would Jesus be writhing like that? Why would, what would the cup mean? Don't you know that there's Christians throughout history that have died with way more poise and peace than Jesus? Christians who were thrown to the arena, thrown to wild animals, and they went to their death singing and praising God in peace. People were marked on the peace that they had. What would make sense over this agony and pain of Jesus Christ only if he experienced something no one else ever has or ever will? Can you, he says, can you take this cup? No, it's a, it's a rhetorical question. We can't. You better be sure when you say, I don't believe in a God who pours out his wrath on sin because if you decide that, you better be sure of it. Because what you've done is you've just robbed yourself of the greatest gift you can possibly have. Without understanding the wrath of God, you'll never know how much Jesus loves you. You'll never have an understanding of what he did for you. You'll never be transformed by it. You'll never be melted by it. You'll never be invigorated and changed by it. You'll make it incomprehensible. So you better be sure, there better be lots of evidence that God is a God of love, but he doesn't care enough to get angry when what he loves is trampled. Look out into the world and see how much sin and evil and brokenness there is. Who would never punish sin? Who would not care? Would your mom or dad, if that was happening to you, would the artist... Everybody who's good, everybody else would somehow be, be different, but God, no, God would never punish sin. He doesn't. Well, then what did Jesus go through? And a, a side point here is that Jesus, he didn't ransom you because he was stuck and he had to. He's not stuck with you. Jesus isn't sitting around resenting the fact that he saved you. He, it was love that drove him to the cross. Amen? Yeah. Romans 5, 6 says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus drank the cup. Jesus paid the ransom. Jesus bought us from bondage. And where does that leave us? Today, that leaves us in an entirely new situation. If that's true, because of the depth and the thoroughness of what he did, we are free from ourselves. Think about that. Because now we have more honor than our ego could ever want in a hundred lifetimes. What are, you, what are you doing out there? Worried about somebody because they snubbed you, because they ignored you, because he didn't ask you out? What are you worried about? Here's all the honor. Here's all the honor your, yourself, your ego could want in a hundred lifetimes. God looked at you and said, this is the only way I will take the cup. You're free from yourself if you understand the cross. You're free from idols if you understand the cross. You're free from the law. Totally. And he who the Son has set free is free indeed. You're free from your tormented conscience. You're free from your guilt and your shame because what he did was absolutely more than enough. You're accepted if you're in Christ. You're loved. 
Jesus is your friend, your king, your shepherd, your brother. The father accepts you as perfect in him. Your sins are wiped out. They're gone. As far as the east is from the west, he's removed your sin from you. If all this is true, if, if you've been completely released from self, you've been ransomed, your, your old relationship to yourself, it's gone. Your old relationship to idols, they're gone. Your old relationship with the law is gone. I mean, you still obey the law. You don't kill people. You still love people, but you're not judged according to the law because he was judged for you. you the law can't condemn you anymore. You know when you fall down, you're, you're in a relationship with a father who loves you and accepts you. How freeing is that? Do you know what that does? The gospel makes you servants, servants of love. See, you're serving something, and many of us are serving things that are diminishing our life. We're serving idols and self and the law. But in the gospel, you're given a Lord and master who serves you. And he loves you and he takes your place. Think about that. That frees you from all those lesser tyrannical masters. It changes you. See, apart from the gospel, we all, we all want others to serve us. We all want to lord it over at some level in our life. Because we've all been lorded over. We've all been taken advantage of. We've all had to be that. Anybody? Yeah. But when we see that we've been loved and served by the true Lord of creation, it frees us from the broken economics of our world and it frees us to live the backward economics of the kingdom. It frees us from finding our identity and being served. To being able to love and serve as we've been loved and served. And that's, that's kind of what we see at the end of the movie with Phil. <laughs> because, you know, he's, he's throwing out the rules. That didn't work. And then he's measuring himself by the rules. He's tried to be the best he can be. Nothing's working. He's still in this pattern. And at the very end of the movie, he's at this auction, this, this benefit, and they're, they're, they auction him off for a date night. And out of the back of the crowd, out of nowhere, Andy McDowell's character says, whatever, $248.39. And she buys him with all that she has in her bank account, man. And she writes the check. And he experiences this amazing thing for the first time. He experiences the, somebody who loves him purchasing him with all she has. Someone loves him and gives their all for him. And the next morning he wakes up and it's not Groundhog Day. And he's free. And his life is full of love. The love that he longed for. Why? Because freedom isn't the absence of the law. Freedom isn't being the best you can be in measuring yourself by the law. Freedom is belonging to one who loves you, who gives their all for you. And that's a little picture of the gospel. It's not much. It's just a cultural reference. But what a cool little picture of the gospel. Because in the gospel, God did give his all for you to purchase you for himself. Because he loves you. And he's not a terrible master who lords it over you. He's the perfect Lord and Savior who serves you. By the way, isn't that somebody you would want to serve? Somebody who loves and serves you more than you could ever love and serve them in return? That's not, that's not slavery. That's bliss. That's what we're all longing for in our relationships. There's an interesting little two-step Jesus 
does, and I'll, I'll kind of wrap things up with this. In verse 38, he seems to say, you, can take my, you can't take my cup, right? You can't take the wrath of God. But then in verse 39, remember he says, but you will take a cup. You guys remember that? What's he mean? Well, it's fairly simple, but it's profound. He's saying, you can't serve the way I served. You, you won't suffer the wrath of God. You don't take the big cup, but you will find if you let me serve you, you'll become a servant. If you let me perfectly love you, you'll become more loving than ever. And you'll go out into the world as a servant of love. The way Austin said it in Preaching Club when we were reading over this text, he said, we don't take the big cup, we take the sippy cups. <laughs> I love that. Why? Because... When you're bought out of captivity, you're still in bonds, but you're in bonds of love. Here's an example. Imagine, imagine you were in a dire situation and a woman saved your life. And you go visit her in the hospital and, and you know, she's injured for life, so you go to see her. You're alive, you're free, you're healthy. You, she paid a terrible price and, and you've experienced all this freedom. She's not, she's in bonds. Maybe she, she can never walk again, let's say. Because she saved you. Just imagine a situation like that. You're free. But don't you see that there's a different kind of bondage now? You go in and you say, how can I ever repay you? And there's a pressure kind of on your spirit. And that's the reason Paul says, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Right? That's what that means. What, what if you went into a hospital room and, and you say, hey, you freed me, how can I ever repay you? And she says, look, I have a little girl. I don't know if I'm going to be able to take care of her now. Can you take care of her? Would you say, mm, nah, sorry. <laughs> Asking way too much. No way. No, of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for her, right? You'd gladly say, absolutely, what I owe you, I will pay your child. I will love them. I will take care of them. They won't want for anything. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ says to those of us who are his followers. Have you understood what the cup is? Have you understood what he did for you? It turns you into a servant of everyone. Matthew 25, Jesus says that there's coming a day, God at the end day will, will gather us all together and he's going to say, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was distressed and you didn't hold me. I was, you didn't listen to me. I was homeless and you didn't take me in. And on that day, people are going to say, when did that happen? When were you homeless, Jesus? When were you in distress? And he's going to say, they were all around you. They were me. When you ignored them, you ignored me. And what's Jesus saying? He's saying, what, from his hospital bed, as it were, what you owe me, pay them. What's your attitude going to be? If you understand the cup, if you understand the cross, your attitude is, man, that's the least I can do. That's the least I can do. See, you're, you're a servant anyway, but you're either a slave to yourself and idols and the law or you're a servant of love. And what's that look like? I mean, think about when you think of somebody who serves you, what's it like to be around a servant? When I'm a servant, I'm free from having a jockey for position. I'm free from needing all this gratitude and affirmation all the time. I, I don't need thanks anymore. It's my job to move out and see what people need and give it to them. A servant is somebody who makes you feel so valuable, so loved. A servant is somebody who focuses on you and cares for you. A servant is somebody who says, what can I do for this person? You guys been around people like that? And you just feel so valued and cared for and listened to and helped? 
Why? Because you're helped. They're helping you. They're serving you. A servant isn't somebody who needs a whole lot of affirmation because they have all the affirmation and honor that they need already. And that's how people felt around Jesus. And that's what Jesus is calling his followers to be. Servant's not somebody who says, hey man, I work my fingers to the bone for you. I do all this stuff, you never thank me. I lent money to this guy and they never paid me back. I know I'm not going to get it back. Hate that guy. Which none of us would actually say out loud, probably, right? But in our hearts, you're like, (laughs) Jesus says, don't you understand my kingdom always has cups. If you're going to serve, you're going to take it on the chin sometimes. I took the big cups so you could take the little sippy cups. <laughs> and here's the deal. When you start giving away, you will be taken advantage of. Don't you see? A servant knows that. A servant knows. How, how could you feel self-pity, though, when, when I see all I've gotten is from him? I've been given far more than I could ever give. Let me put it to you this way in closing. When the disciples, James and John, said, Lord Jesus, we want you to do whatever we'll ask. I know somewhere in Jesus' head, he had to have been thinking, like, in his heart, I'm drinking the cup for these people. <laughs> right? Uh, in the garden, Jesus says, I'm only, I'm only going to ask you guys, can you just stay awake for, for like an hour while I'm praying? Can you just, one hour, right? As I'm writhing on the ground, sweating drops of blood for what I'm about to do for you. Could you just stay awake for an hour? And he comes back and what? They're asleep. And what does he do? He served them. He loved them. Notice what he says to him. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's saying, ah, I know you meant well. He finds a, a way to compliment them. The heart of a servant. Those people represent you and me. Those people, Jesus died for people who are stubborn. Are there people in your life who are stubborn? How are you treating them? Jesus died for people who are always wanting from him and never wanting to give anything in return. Are, are there people around you who are always taking and never giving, never giving in return? Can you see? Jesus died for people who slept through his greatest hour of need. Aren't there people in your life who have slept through your greatest hour of need? You're looking at people around you and saying, they should have known. What are you doing? Are you withdrawing from them? Are you attacking them? Are you being cold to them? Do you keep them in a position, a stance of servanthood toward them? Have you given up on them? Look at what Jesus did for you. And the more you do, the more you're melted by that the more you draw on the resources that are yours there in the gospel, the more you're going to be able to be the servant that Jesus is. I'll end with this line. Only when you see the Lord Jesus Christ serving you in the gospel will your heart be freed from serving the lesser masters who've distorted your life and free to serve in love. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to be a church of of people who do care for those in need around us for the homeless and for the poor and the distressed. And we want to be a church of people who reach out to folks who are hard to love. We want to be a church full of servants who take this identity that you purchased with your own blood for us, to take this identity to heart, to the very center of who we are. 
Now, where are we going to get the strength for that? Where are we going to get the ability to drink from those little sippy cups? Only if we see what great big cup of wrath you drank from. So, Father, make us servants. Help us to love infallibly because we've been loved infallibly. Help us to serve because we've been served. And we ask that you turn us into a great and beautiful servant that your son was. There's no weakness in his servanthood, nothing but courage. So we pray that you would do the same in us. Strength, we need strength. Put it into our hearts. Holy Spirit, we can't do this on our own. Community is hard. Living in gospel communities on mission throughout the week, when we rub life on life with each other, creates friction. We feel like we're owed. We feel entitled. We resort to that default of self being at the center. I I pray that you'd free us from that. I pray that today as we look on your son and the terrible costly price you paid for us on the cross by spilling your blood so that we could have pardon. By living a perfect life every day in your body, that, that the flesh, that, that we're going to go over and eat crackers and represent that. I pray that you would remind us that we don't need to work really, really hard to be righteous because the righteousness that you lived every day in your life, you gave to us freely. That we're loved and accepted and secure. Free us from needing to be served because we've been served more than we could even imagine in the gospel and free us to love and serve and give our lives to you by serving the needs around us. In Jesus' name, amen.